0: Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Rahim So this is, I guess, the fifth in our considerations of certain uh, luminous individuals who may or may not have things to say to us about this uh, Islamically dubious uh, managerial category of leadership. The idea is not so much to present certain tick-box role models but rather to look at certain Muslim careers to see how those careers might shed light and perhaps deepen this rather flat contemporary category which develops in the context of a world which only values status, autonomy, uh, money-making. So, Uh, Last time we were looking at the interesting figure of Nana Asmau to see how in a pre-reformed, pre-colonial, really entirely classical, sharia-centric Muslim context, a woman could achieve uh, an influential position. Power is perhaps not the category that Islam, in its insistence on the direct divine omnipotence, likes to conjure with very much but instead uh, certainly to have an influence because to have an influence if it's an influence for khair for good is something that is valued and is is indeed prophetic so perhaps influence rather than leadership is the kind of islamically compliant vocabulary that we should be reaching to. And perhaps by the time I get to the end of this series, we may or may not have some conclusions about that. But if anything has become clear, at least to me, in the course of these journeys, it is that we are not dealing with a single paradigm. Because we are talking about the uh, concatenation of certain very human traits, which then go on to influence other human beings—we're not talking about leadership of the animal kingdom or whatever, trying to get two tigers to make friends in London Zoo. Uh, we're talking about Bani Adam, much more difficult, and therefore uh, we have to hold before ourselves the Quranic insistence on human diversity, the ichtilef are of God's signs, the difference of your languages and colors, which is Quranic speak for cultural diversity. Uh, and that therefore we're not seeking a single paradigm of how to influence human beings in an upward direction. Pulling them down is pretty easy. Um, pulling them up is that which furrows the brows of philosophers and prophets in all ages, uh, but instead are looking at this gigantically massive galaxy of individual human souls, which it has pleased divine providence to set in this dunya. No two human beings are ever alike, even identical twins. There's always a difference few years ago, I wrote a newspaper piece about the finalists for the Miss Wales competitions. I assure you, um, I read just the text. But the finalists were two identical twin sisters. And this, of course, raised all kinds of interesting questions. But one of them did win and the other didn't. Nobody is completely the same as somebody else. And therefore, when we're talking about this kind of uh, capacity to... Shape a soul. We're looking at something on which there can be few hard and fast sort of fixed algorithms, like a medicine. It can be one man's medicine, it can be another man's poison, and the doctor may not quite understand the implications of what he's prescribing. So we've seen different human types. Uh, and what I want to look at uh, this time, and perhaps in a future lecture is the type that is generated and flourishes Islamically when it comes uh, from a Western trajectory. And this is a type that has been noisily but superficially celebritized by anxious communities in the Western world. That silly little book, Islam, our choice, Onwards celebrity converts but uh, not really taken to be a possible paradigm but the phenomenon nonetheless reminds us of something that we frequently uh, let go of which is that islam is not a matter of identity and of anxiously continuing ancestral ways and of fending off the guilt that comes when we're not doing that correctly, but is instead a path to God and a claim about reality. It's interesting to note, in the midst of the uh, panic about the rise of the new national populism across Europe and the Five Star Movement in Italy, and what it thinks about Muslims. And the Fidesz party in Hungary and what it thinks about Muslims. And Marine Le Pen in France and what she thinks about Muslims. This post-liberal age that we're moving into and all the migrants are kind of sort of blinking in the headlights and not quite sure what happened to their dream. That uh, a community's retreat into markers of identity will just exacerbate the difference that produces the Nativist reaction in the first place. It's not working. It becomes a zero-sum game. Instead, Islam, if presented as something that is about truth, virtue, compassion, respect, all those ultimate primal prophetic virtues are not primarily about us holding on for dear dear life to these poorly understood, um, poorly applied ancestral principles that we stuffed into our bags when we left. Kurdistan, or Malaysia, or Pakistan, or wherever, and which we somehow want to keep hold of here. Uh, if it is really about truth and virtue, and hence universal things, then it should be possible to deal with those people because they too are concerned with the loss of identity. Everybody's so puzzled by Gert Wilders' right-hand man, Joran van Cleveren, who Announced his conversion to Islam last week, and everybody was kind of scratching their heads and thinking, well, this is very funny and very odd. Muslims shouldn't think it's funny and odd. He's not the first. Werner Klaun, one of the leading German uh, far-right politicians, thundering away for years against the European Union and against refugees and asylum seekers and Muslim terrorists, also converted to Islam, and has now adopted four Syrian refugee children. This disturbs the usual Muslim community rhetoric because we thought this was about them and us. Islamophobia, our own niceness. But no, religion is about truth. And when you start to think of it being about truth rather than holding on to these ancestral cultural heirlooms, things become much more interesting and monotheism shows its power, particularly in the sort of decadent, relativistic, post-monotheistic, unhappy state Europe is in. Monotheism is a very serious and attractive contender, but we don't really want to present ourselves in those terms. We hardly ever do. Instead, we go into our huddle in our little race temples and we keep up with the ancestral folkways and just hope that the far right won't take over and put us on a boat and send us far away. Uh, That's the extent of our discussion. So, when we look at... Those whose influence, I shan't say leadership now, but influence comes from having leapt that supposed gulf between west and east, and we start to look at indigenous Muslim traditions, then we start to hopefully cheer up a little bit and perhaps even learn that there can be an Islam that's genuinely local and intelligent and takes people's anxieties about us seriously, rather than just holding on to Granny's customs and hoping for the best. Mm-hmm. But we're certainly not there yet. The Muslims came to this country, or to France, or to Germany, or wherever, they didn't really ask the local Muslims, how do you do it here? They just kept on with their folkways because they couldn't imagine anything else. But perhaps now the situation is becoming uncomfortable for us, we can reconsider that determination, so that Islam is not just a badge of ethnic irreducibility, but is a set of claims about truth and virtue and compassion. Maybe maybe we need to be kicked around a bit before we realise what Islam says it is. In any case, the uh, paradigms when you look at British Muslims, by which I mean those whose ancestry is located here rather than somewhere else. I don't think you can be any more specific uh, British in that sort of ancestral sense rather than any other sense. Again, you find uh, an almost hopeless diversity. There isn't a single paradigm or a single road to Mecca for the country's Muslims. What you do see is a large number of very distinctive and forceful individuals, almost by definition. Somebody who, particularly in colonial or pre-colonial times, comes to Islam from the very fixed, class-ridden, static world of little England, is going to be some kind of stormy petrol, uh, some defiant mould-breaker. Perhaps he'll be a quiet, academic eccentric, but perhaps he'll be quite a spectacular and unusual person. And sometimes they have threatened to play a significant role in history. Lord Headley, for instance, one of the up in lights in that funny book, Islam, Our Choice, for various platitudinizing reasons, uh, was actually off of the turn of Albania, following uh, Albania's uh, unwilling independence from the Ottoman Empire. That was the time when the Europeans thought that anybody who was a kind of Western aristocrat could. I mean, the Greek royal family are Germans, aren't they? So are the Bulgarians. This is the odd way in which we liberated the Balkans. So Lord Headley proposed as King of Albania. He said it went to that uh, disappointing person, King Zog, and the rest is history. Khalid Sheldrake was appointed to be the king of eastern Turkestan, or the sultan. That's the land of the Uyghurs who are currently going through such hard times. Hmm. We don't know exactly the extent to which he exercised his authority, but the story is there in the newspapers of the times. Abdullah Quilliam, another unusual person, maybe will Tracy's story in a later lecture. Certainly, if you use the paradigm of leadership individual, founder of the first significant mosque community in the UK, also somebody whose style of Islam has a certain, shall we say, exuberance to it. And this is perhaps one of the things we need to think about in offering thoughts about western muslim leadership or influence that the eastern way really since the 19th century has tended to favor forms of religiosity marked by reactions to extreme anxiety if you look at the texts of 18th century indian scholars and compare them to the texts of 20th century indian scholars You'll be amazed at how little sectarianism and how little pettifogging insistence on a unique, fiqhi rightness you find in the older texts. That's Thomas Bowers' culture of ambiguity. It was assumed by the Muslim elite that Islam was this kind of banquet of different possibilities. Mughal India, one of the most sort of exuberantly diversity-affirming affir- places on earth, and the same goes for the Ottomans and the Uzbeks and everybody. And then the Europeans kick in the door and there is a mass trauma and the elites start to become anxious and unhappy and seek refuge in narrow sectarianisms. After the 1850s, all of these reformisms thrive. And it becomes unimaginable to be a proper Indian scholar unless you are meticulously ticking a hundred boxes that make you a Brailvi of a particular kind, or two hundred boxes that make you a deobandi of a particular kind, and everything becomes a wrangling with other forms of unique ripeness. So a relaxed style of Islam becomes a culture of anxiety. And this is the culture that was brought to us in the West, everybody being very anxious about the threat to their identity and therefore seeking psychological refuge in forms of meticulous and forensic mm. correctness. Thomas Bauer's whole book is about this, the transformation of the old Islam, which is kind of a relaxed and celebratory lyrical view of life and a shift to this Islam, which is all about tiptoeing through a minefield, uh, which is the dominant form of Islam, articulate Islam today. Look at the uh, curriculum for religious studies in Pakistan, for instance, and it's just a long list of reasons to be anxious about various things that are wrong. There is hardly a text there that's more than 50 years old. In any case, one can grumble about this, but the point of shifting the optic and looking at Western figures is that usually these Westerners do not come with this colonized anxiety-induced mentality, which is not necessarily the fault of the people concerned, but certainly gives Islam a very different flavor. So you get Abdallah Quilliam, very much uh, somebody who enjoyed his Islam, was impatient with fiqhi minutiae, read his newspapers, there's very little there about fatwa wars or sectarian troubles, hardly any mention of the Sunni-Shii divide, And the Shia, when they came to his mosque in Liverpool, joined in the congregation and they were all one happy family as Muslims. Um, Hard for that to happen today. It was just a different air that that generation was breathing. And because those people were never part of the uh, psychological violence wrought upon colonised peoples, they maintained in an odd way that older style of uh, Islam. So we have this remarkable lineup. Evelyn Cobbold, yeah, one of the best known, perhaps the best known of uh, converts, female converts of the early 20th century, uh, still very much her own autonomous lady. And if you go to her grouse moor in Sutherland, they were big aristocrats, uh, you'll find her grave with uh, Ayatan Noor inscribed on it right at the top of a mountain. Uh, in these treeless, bleak corners of the top right-hand corner of Scotland, which was her deer park. She was a a famous hunter. Benjamin Bishop, the British ambassador to Cairo in the 17th century, who went native, who loved the local ways so much that he just converted to Islam, changes his name. The Foreign Office archives say any attempt to trace him failed. They've got no idea what happened to him. The Scotsman, who became Ottoman governor of Medina. Peter Lyle, who became captain of the Ottoman fleet at Tripoli. Remember that American anthem about the rocket's red glow and so forth? That's about their battle with him. They were fighting the Ottoman Empire, which wasn't the Turks. It was a lot of converts. There's been some recent academic studies on the Ottoman Empire as a state driven by the energy, uh, the new blood of the converts. Uh, But in just about every case, John Ward, several books about John Ward, that goes back to the 16th century now. Uh, The English uh, captain who dies in Tunis, his grave is in Tunis, uh, Yusuf Rais. None of these people represent the modern anxiety Islam of writing lots of anxious articles to explain why one particular rival fatwa is not following the correct dalil. None of them, as far as one can tell, are interested in that Islam. And certainly, this is the case with the individual that I want to talk about today, because he's been resuscitated a little bit in mass media, um, albeit in a rather specialized and conspiratorial role. And I might talk about that at the end. Why is he still uh, out there? Uh, But this is... uh, uh, Remember, Quilliam's name is William Quilliam. So his parents must have had a sense of Mm humour. But now I'm talking about William Williamson. His parents don't seem to have much of a sense of humour because um, they uh, were stern Victorians who gave him a hard time. But he becomes, for the British Muslim community, a very kind of significant symbol of somebody who really... Combined his Islam with an anxiety-free kind of roving. His life is uh, extraordinarily jam-packed with adventures of various kinds. He didn't write, even though he was from an educated family. Uh, And towards the end of his life, people recalled how he spoke with this very kind of cut-glass, Victorian, uh, precise English. Um, kind of Joyce Grenfell English, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, But he didn't write, certainly never went to university. Uh, So the information that we have about him is from people who knew him, uh, and one of the sources is from uh, the records of oil exploration in the Gulf in the early mid 20th century because it turns out he was one of the key pioneers um, of the Anglo-Iranian oil company and BP and Shell in uh, uh, extracting the first oil exploration concessions from the Qataris and from the Kuwaitis. So that's the place to go if you want contemporary records and no doubt there's lots of stuff in the Foreign Office because they deplored him in many ways and no doubt there are dusty files with um disapproving remarks on this English chap who um, went native be um, interesting to look those files out uh, but also a novelist uh, by the name of Stanton Hope now largely forgotten who specialized mainly in uh, the history of the merchant Navy and shell tanker fleet and so forth, uh, uh, was stuck in southern Iraq just after the uh, end of the Second World War and spent a lot of time with uh, William Williamson, who by that time was pretty old. He died in 1958 and with plenty of time on his hands um, uh, recorded his story. So uh, that would have been lost for uh, posterity had it not been for uh, the Otherwise forgotten Stanton Hope. So uh, we have a pretty full picture. Born in eighteen seventy two, he's from Bristol. Now Quilliam is from Liverpool, one of England's windows to the world, great port city, greatest port in the world. Bristol is also a port, of course, although declining a little bit since it had been associated with the slave trade, Estella. Black Boys Hill in Bristol, various other slightly concerning place names. Uh, but still a major port. Um, this is still the age of sail, not of steam. Uh, and the father, who has four children, is almost the of stereotype of the Victorian stern paterfamilias who wishes uh, to bring out the best in his children through endless disapproval. So he sends him to Clifton School, which is still one of the country's well-known schools. But um, the boy rebels against the discipline and rebels against parental discipline and gets into all kinds of scrapes. This, again, uh, is a bit reminiscent of our own Ahmed Bullock, who was here when we had our opening at uh, CMC. He was the first imam of a mosque in either Oxford or Cambridge, and a legend amongst. British Muslims who, when he was an undergraduate in Cambridge during the Second World War, uh, when the place was a rather kind of strange depopulated town, became one of the city's great night climbers. This is the strictly forbidden pursuit of students going out at night in their ordinary clothes, climbing buildings. Um, They still do it and we throw them out unceremoniously if we catch them which sometimes we do. Anyway, one of his stunts was to leave a chamber pot right at the pinnacle of the Fitzwilliam Museum. So, youthful high spirits. Uh, And uh, Williamson's favourite stunt was to climb the Clifton Suspension Bridge. Now, he must have been about 12 when he did this. And the blood runs cold when you think of a little boy going up uh, the fairly vertiginous inclines of, if you've seen the Avon Gorge and you've seen the suspension bridge, you can get a sense of uh, how fearless he must have been. Uh, he also learned to ride. He used to go out to the kind of Cheddar Gorge area and he became quite good in the saddle. Often these were ways of escaping the attention of his father who uh, generally would either approach him or beat him when he was at home. Um, the father thought that he really wasn't doing very well at school, and perhaps in order to knock this rebellious kid into shape, best thing to do would be to give him an even more horrible experience than an English public school, which was, of course, to put him on one of these ships, ocean-going vessels, which were heading out to the wide world from uh, Bristol Harbour, And to have a word in the ear of the skipper saying, make sure you give him a really hard time. Uh, And later on, uh, the boy discovers, he hears it behind the wheelhouse that the skipper's saying, I have to report back to his father that he's had the the most unpleasant time any ship's boy has ever had. And maybe then he'll attend to his homework. Uh, So he's sent off on a foremast bark. Um, which is one of the, the, the vast, powerful uh, sailing ships of those pre-steam days. Uh, and he's uh, his, uh, uh, his 13 at the time, and he recalled that his father said, I hope, my boy, the money I have to pay for premium will show better dividends than the money wasted on your schooling. That was Dad's way of saying goodbye. So he goes onto the ship and immediately they're in a gale, this is December in the Bay of Biscay. and uh, the boy uh, refuses to polish the brasswork on the ship and as a reward, he's mast headed. It's a significant punishment in those days, especially if it's a December gale in Biscay, which means that you have to go up to the highest uh, uh, point of the mainmast and just stay there um, until you are bidden to come down again. When he comes down, he's almost dead. Has to be revived, but he still refuses to polish the brasswork, and nothing the they can do for the rest of the journey. They're going to Australia um, can make him uh, come around. So um, he's regularly flogged. Um, he gets to New South Wales. Uh, this bark unloads its cargo uh, and is then going back to Bristol via San Diego. Picks up coals in the Australian Newcastle, and off it goes to California. Um, this is the point at which he overhears the vessel's captain explaining to a first mate or someone that he's been given strict instructions um, to give the boy a miserable time, and so he decides not to give the father the pleasure of seeing him again and going back to school because he quite likes the seaborne life. Uh, and at San Diego, where the uh, rest of the ship's company, go ashore in search of um, the usual sailors' comforts, um, beer and beauty for most ca- in most cases, he uh, walks straight inland in order to avoid the possibility of bumping into any of the crew and essentially uh, jumps ship. He's only got two dollars, he hasn't got any papers, and he finds work in a farm somewhere near Los Angeles. It seems hard for us to imagine, but in those days, despite our current claims to being a free society, uh, things were a lot easier for people who were happy to travel with no expectation of being particularly comfortable back then. He didn't have a passport in his whole life, as far as we can tell, but he travelled to the globe. Sometimes if you had board of trade papers, uh, it helped getting a job as a casual labourer or a seaman, but basically most of these guys often they'd lose their papers in drunken brawls and it was understood that there was a floating population globally of people who were just migrants, economic migrants. It's not like Trump building the wall back then. Nobody thought about the difficulty of moving anywhere you wanted in the world and this really shaped his life. So he works on a farm By the age of 14, he has his own shotgun, uh, learns to shoot as well as to ride, um, and just wanders away from the farm, never goes back, just to become a kind of um, trapper and hunter in the Californian outdoors. And he picks up his lifelong dislike of cities. He's very much a a nature man. sleeping underneath the skies in the the Rockies, um, hunting his own game. And then he remembers that he has a relative, his Aunt Amy, who has married somebody in California. They have a little homestead. So he amazingly finds her, and she remembers him. uh, And he finds employment there for a while. Now, she is a devout Seventh-day Adventist, And this is the first point at which God comes into the story. And the Seventh-day Adventists have already had their famous great disappointment. I think it was October the 21st, 1844, when the Adventists predicted Jesus would come again and the world would end. And all the Adventists in white robes went up to the top of mountains all over America, expecting to be raptured up to heaven. The next day came and things still looked pretty normal. Uh, that's called the Great Disappointment. And today's Seventh day Adventist churches, still active, have a church in, in Cambridge, are descended from one of the off- offshoots of the Great Disappointment. So this Aunt Amy is also big on this. Uh, and she would also go up to local hill- hilltops and sing in white robes. Um, but uh, she actually uh, took a, uh, a shine to her nephew, still only 14. Um, who was really useful about the farm, uh, could ride well, uh, started to master the usual cowboy skills, um, and didn't, like most of the other cowboys, blow all of his savings on wine and women in the nearest Tugon town, uh, but seemed to be of an abstemious and reflective temperament. Um, it seems that he had developed largely as a result of exposure to the sort of silent wonders of nature, uh, a strong belief in God and a dislike of cities and the corruption and degradation which he saw. Um, the uh, gold rush towns of California in particular were showcases for everything that is wrong with the human uh, condition. So you have this image of this 14-year-old boy with his own gun uh, really falling in love with God, but also, as you would expect, full of adventure. This is the West, um, possibilities everywhere. And he decides to join the gold prospecting um, uh, rush. So uh, he gets a mule and uh, joins another cowboy. Turns out he's also from Bristol. Um, and they go to the Nevada mountains on the Gold Trail. Not really knowing how these things are done, they're sleeping innocently under the stars, and when they wake up in the morning, they find that everything has been stolen. Even his old Mexican shotgun and his bag was stolen from beneath his head while he slumbered. So they have absolutely nothing. Even their shoes have been stolen. Cook, this other Bristol guy, turns back. But Williamson, in bare feet, is not discouraged. And he continues to uh, move on to the Nevadas, where he ends up panning for gold and creates a stake to a mine, which eventually he sells for about $600. Um, uh, Once he sold the mine, it wasn't a particularly good mine, it seems, he drifts back to San Francisco um, and then he decides to try his luck at sea again. So he gets on a cargo ship bound for Bordeaux, which has to go before the Panama Canal around Cape Horn. And the crossing is so bad that the ship almost broaches to almost founders in terrifyingly high seas. Um, and he spends a little bit of time in France and Spain, which he reminisced about in later life. Uh, but then decides with a friend that he's going to try his luck working uh, on the new Panama Canal. This is the first Panama Canal, the one that they tried to build at sea level, which turned out to be impossible, and a 1,000 men a day were dying in the construction, largely through malaria and yellow fever. It was well paid, but dangerous. So he gets malaria there. He has malaria for the rest of his life. And... Uh, works for a while on the canal, but then makes his way back to California. And here he has another of his improbable experiences. Uh, It turns out that he can juggle and sing quite well. So he joins a travelling theatre troupe that goes around these cowboy towns, just entertaining these uh, probably quite easily pleased uh, cowhands. He also works as an amateur boxer. Um, (coughs) and gets through the first three stages of the San Francisco boxing championship, presumably within his weight, he was only a teenager at the time. (coughs) The night before the big fight (coughs) he accepts a beer in a bar in San Francisco that turns out to be laced with opium or some other drug and he wakes up the next day in the hold of a ship that's sailing out of San Francisco Bay. He's, in, uh, <coughs> <coughs> he's been uh, shanghaied. In fact, the origin of the term Shanghai comes from the fact that this is how they picked up unwilling sailors um, in the red light district, which was the Chinatown of uh, San Francisco. You just drug them and drag them to the ship, and then they were, were stuck. So he's on a ship that turns out to be a whaler, so the next year of his life he spends uh, uh, whaling. Um, Turns out that he likes it, so even though the captain has uh, crimped him in this way, he agrees to stay on. So (coughs) he's already a seasoned mariner, uh, proves himself uh, to be uh, a good man with a harpoon, Um, and then. He uh, returns to San Francisco and takes ship again with uh, another um, schooner, this time one headed for the South Seas. And here begins another of the almost unbelievable episodes in his life, which is that in the Caroline Islands, which at the time were largely controlled by Spain, being adjacent to the Philippines, uh, he sets up as a local trader specializing in sea cucumber farming, which is a rather specialized niche market. But this is something that's a delicacy for the Chinese. And there are certain islands there where these um, rather unprepossessing creatures may be had. Uh, he also has a sideline in uh, the buying and selling and the repair of firearms. And this is what gets him into uh, the next extraordinary dangerous scrape, because it turns out that some of the uh, Martini Henry rifles that he has been trading has be- have been used by uh, rebels in the Philippines who are rebelling against the uh, depredations of the Spanish authorities. And so the Spaniards come along, and they put him in jail. And he stays in this quite atrocious prison uh, for months without any real prospect of a trial The uh, Spanish rule in the Philippines was particularly brutal uh, and harsh. Um, This is before the Americans take over. Mm -hmm. A Filipino friend once told me, if you want to understand our colonial history, for 400 years under the Spanish, we lived in a monastery, and then for 50 years under the Americans, we lived in a brothel. So that's the kind of... But this is very much the, the stern inquisitorial Spanish colonial world that he is experiencing. But he manages to bribe a guard to leave his manacles unlocked. And having carefully uh, uh, worked out his route of uh, escape um, at a key moment, as the um, chain gang is being led through the streets of Manila to do some work in the docks, he uh, runs away, and shots are fired after him. Uh, But he dashes through the door of the American consulate. He's seen the flag, and uh, the consul, rather startled, bars the door behind him, and the Spanish soldiers are kind of beating at the door and asking for the uh, uh, escapee to be rendered up. But the consul, and this is an interesting circumstance, turns out to be somebody who is also very important in American Muslim history, is Alexander Russell Webb. You may know that Dr. Omar Abdullah has written a book about Alexander Russell Webb as really the first significant da'iya in the history of the United States. And another interesting case of a very independently minded uh, Westerner who manages to be quite establishment in many ways, but also to be a, a noisy advocate for Islam. At this point, Webb hasn't yet converted. We don't know if there was any subsequent relationship other than the fact that when uh, Williamson does convert, some years later, he writes a letter to all the people he knew, summoning them to Islam. And one of these, it seems, went to to Webb. Um, But whether that was instrumental in his conversion, uh, nobody seems to know. So uh, (coughs) this is Alexander Russell Webb, 1846 to 1916, the first salient figure in American Islam. Interesting uh, coincidence of narratives. The British consulate say, no, they don't want anything to do with an escaped prisoner. Please don't bother us. They refuse to get involved. So Webb, probably acting beyond the call of duty, contacts uh, the captain of a British tramp steamer in Manila Bay, explaining the situation. And uh, the captain comes along to the embassy with heavy fireman's uniform. And uh, uh, Williamson goes through the streets of... uh, Manila, under the eyes of the Spanish authorities pretending to be a drunk fireman. Nobody notices who he is, and he makes good his escape. Uh, he then, because he's learned his trade well, is a good mariner, uh, lands a position when he reaches Hong Kong, which is where the steamer is going, uh, as quartermaster on a crack liner, one of the... Uh, PO liners, uh, which is heading for Singapore and India. So at that time, ships could be really terrifyingly scruffy, uh, old tubs, but they were also kind of the first-class um, wide-bodied jets of the time, but more elegant. Uh, and he's got a job on one of these uh, crack liners. So he goes to Bombay. He's paid off. And here again, he seems to have one of his uh, sort of wanderlust episodes. And again, he's got his religious eyes open. Bombay is a completely amazing place, because all of the world's religions are there and, as it were, on display. It's like a living museum of world um, religions. Uh, Temples, churches, mosques. He goes to the caves of Elephanta. he sees the burning Ghats, uh, the towers of silence, and um, everything is there in Bombay. And this also makes him think about uh, higher things. He does seem to have a, uh, a spiritual yearning, which it broke surface first when he was wandering around in California. But now it's there again. And he starts to wonder, well, which of these could possibly be right? Christianity had been kind of beaten out of him by this severe Victorian upbringing, Um, but uh, which of these extraordinary, exotic alternatives um, could possibly be the case? Um, Remember, he's still a teenager, but he's a seeker. He's a serious person, and he's looking for a sign, and he starts praying for a sign. It's confusing. Bombay is maybe a thousand religions. Uh, how is he supposed to make up his mind? So the next uh, ship he works on is uh, going to Aden, which is course ruled from British India. It's not a separate colony. And the ship has a little library, and in the library he finds a book about Islam. This is the famous book, The Religion of Islam by Abdullah Quilliam, the first really real Muslim blockbuster in the UK. Even Queen Victoria ordered lots of copies to give to her friends and Muslim visitors. She had an interesting relationship with India and Islam. Uh, So he reads it again and again, and he's really interested. Uh, And it looks as if this is the key to his lock. Here he has uh, the answer to all of those questions which have been going around in his mind ever since he was lying on his back in the Californian uh, desert, looking up at the stars, wandering and wondering. uh, It seemed to be a a monotheism that was practical uh, and uh, commonsensical. And this is certainly the way Quilliam presents it a religion less stereotypically oriental in the kind of Baroque complex sense than Christianity, which Quilliam tried to present as this really exotic Greek mystery of religion full of doctrines and paradoxes that nobody could ever really understand, but whose charm was in their incomprehensibility. Trinity, dual nature of Jesus and so forth. Islam is, is much more common sense, almost Anglo-Saxon type of religion. That seems to be the line that he's taking, in other words, the de-ethnicizing of Islam and its presentation is something that uh, directly speaks to the questions asked by his uh, religion. And it also seemed to be a religion for independently-minded people. Again, Quilliam is endlessly going on about the church. And the restriction of the believer by the church and the parish system and the inquisition and so on doesn't have that kind of hierarchy and you pick the mufti that you want and it's kind of almost like a free church you just freelance as it were no mediators between man and god and this also seemed quite uh, appealing to somebody of such strongly uh, individualistic spirit um, So he gets off this ship in Aden. And Aden is not like Hong Kong or Los Angeles or uh, Bombay, where there's a district where the sailors go, which is always kind of outrageous. Um, Bombay has Grant Road, which he'd visited, which even to this day is just a street of prostitutes, and the women are in cages. Um, Nothing like that in Aden. He's in Arabia now, even though it's part of the British Empire. The uh, culture is a uh, Muslim culture, severe, oriented towards heaven, and it's quite different. So uh, it turns out that the assistant resident in Aden is an old friend of his father's. So uh, the local resident, perhaps without a um, consulting the father, offers him a job as a policeman. He needs another white policeman. Um, and Williamson has to add a couple of years to his official age, but he's accepted. Uh, and so he gets a house, good money, and for him an opportunity to live amongst Muslims to see how the thing actually works in practice. Quite dangerous work in many ways, but he's a man who's good with his fists and knows how to use his service revolver. and he. Uh, is sent occasionally on uh, piracy, suppressing expeditions to northern Somaliland. Um, He's uh, an experienced cowboy. He has those gunslinging techniques, and so he becomes a good policeman. Uh, but the residency is not happy with the way in which he fraternizes with the natives. Oh, British imperial ideology is based on the aloofness, the charisma of the white man, and the memsab, as being a kind of Empyrean caste, um, benign towards the natives, but certainly not fraternizing or befriending them. And this applied even to relatively minor functionaries, such as the Aden police. So they start to keep an eye on him because of this sort of social apartheid. And he's spending time in the mosques. not Muslim yet, but he's going to the mosque. He goes to the Maqam of Habib Abu Bakr al-Aida Rus, um, which also upsets them. He uh, acquaints himself with the Sayyids, the Qadis, the other luminaries of the port. and uh, The ulama are saying, well, you're young, don't rush things. Make sure you know what you're doing. They can see a certain impetuosity in him and wide-eyed zeal of the neophyte. Um, so he takes his time. Um, but the authorities think that actually, young William is not quite the thing. It it, it upsets the the august uh, grandeur of the British elite in Aden for one of their representatives to be fraternising with the natives and to go into their place of worship. And so uh, they uh, create a crisis. And the crisis seems to have been triggered slightly earlier when another policeman in the Aden police also converts, possibly maybe in order to marry a local girl, uh, but is immediately uh, sent off to India and isn't allowed to remain. Uh, So the resident sends him to talk to various army padres about Christianity and to remind them of the Christian duties of the servants of the Raj, and he ought to pull his socks up. But uh, he doesn't pay any attention. He spends about a year there, uh, s- s- learning Arabic, uh, spending time with uh, ulama, with these very kind of uh, cool people, who uh, assist him, but aren't immediately kind of on his case and bombarding him with flattery and urging him to take his shahada immediately. Um, they adopt the more reticent traditional form. So he then sends a letter to his father saying, by the way, Peter, I've got a nice job as a policeman in Aden. uh, And have you considered the truths of the Quran? So the father is once again uh, disappointed. And then he finally decides that he's going to take his Shahada in a very public way. Aden is just a kind of um, British corner, but he goes to the, the, the palace of the Sultan of Lahaj, which is to the north of, of Aden, where he makes his formal shahada. Uh, and even though the ulama say, well, you're an adult convert, you don't really need to be circumcised, he insists on going through with it. So it's, they use the traditional egg and flint method, which I probably won't describe here. Um, and he becomes uh, Abdullah Fadil. And the rest of his life is Haji Abdullah Fadil, later on Haji Abdullah Fadil, Zubair, when he starts to uh, live in Zubair in southern Iraq. Um, and he goes back to Aden and immediately tells all of the members of the European community what he's done. So of course, he's uh, placed under arrest, sent off to India. And the official story is that uh, he's suffering from a touch of the sun. Hmm, it's kind of sun Going native or some other embarrassing thing. Uh, He asks to be released from the police when he gets to uh, Bombay, and they say yes. And by the way, here is your ticket back to England. They offer him a free ticket. But he refuses this, wants to go back to the Middle East, but he finds that he can't. He's being followed, he can't get a ticket, nobody will grant him passage, and going by sea is the only possible way to go. So what he does is to buy somebody else's ticket in somebody else's name. This is an Iraqi horse dealer who's in Bombay who doesn't need the the return half of his ticket. So um, Abdullah buys it from him. And uh, off he goes, incognito as it were, even though the British stop the ship in the Gulf, thinking that he's probably on board, and search it. And he admits, yes, this is me, William Williamson, and is told to return to India immediately. But uh, when the backs of the British are turned, he manages to uh, exchange his clothes for Arab clothes and sails away uh, in the company of um, some Kuwaitis on a dhow and goes to Kuwait. So he is now in uh, the southern fringes of the Ottoman Empire, spends a lot of time in Basra, which eventually becomes kind of his spiritual home. A great Ottoman city at the time, of course, outside British uh, control, um, and improving his Arabic. Um, he has um, some interesting encounters in the city of uh, Basra, not least with the most famous Christian missionary of the day, Samuel Zwema who's the founder of a number of important uh, centers, including Center at Hartford Seminary in America and uh, the Journal of the Muslim World, which is now one of the best journals for Muslim-Christian relations, and it's certainly not a missionary publication any longer. But he has this huge debate in Basra. He's kind of pushed up by the Arabs as their spokesman, even though the debate has to happen in Arabic with Samuel Zwaima. So you've got this 19-year-old sort of English new convert against this uh, professorial... Um, a defender of the, the trinity and apparently, according to his reminiscences anyway, um, he acquitted himself well um, and one of the things that he points to, and this is interesting is that he says, you Christians are always divided, a catholic missionary would be saying something else, an orthodox missionary would be something else, why are you in the state of ihtilaf? whereas look at us Muslims in southern Iraq Look at the good relations between the Sunnis and the Shia. Never any trouble between the Sunnis and the Shia in Iraq. Different age, wasn't it? Um, but that was normal you know, until uh, recent eruptions and the rise of anxiety Islam. Uh, so he's safe from the Christians religiously, but the British Empire is still not pleased with him, and uh, he gets instructions to report to the British consulate in uh, Basra, uh, and they pressure the Ottoman governor into uh, accepting this. But um, before he allows himself to be manhandled and taken to the consulate, he uh, vanishes in his Arabian clothes, now speaking passable Arabic. And he learns Farsi later on. Apparently he. Uh, had a very interesting career in Iran also, uh, takes his guns and his money and just vanishes into the desert where neither the Ottomans nor the British can possibly get their hands on him. So he spends some time in small desert towns, Zubair, which becomes his final home, which is uh, a Sunni town in southern Iraq, a walled city and an important center for the ulama, and also in Kuwait, which is not part of um, either the British or the Ottoman domains uh, at the time. And he's working really hard, improving his Arabic and also learning Islam. Uh, at a later point in his career, he studies at a madrasa in Damascus. He's keen enough, really, to want to, to know the elma, But he also loves traveling. Uh, he's got the wanderlust again. So he uh, finds that there's a certain convergence between the cowboy lifestyle and a life on the open range, and the life of the the Bedouin of Arabia, which he appreciates for its freedom and also the spirit of adventure. So he learns much more about horses, and he also learns about camels as well, and starts to earn an uh, an income buying and selling uh, horses and camels. Um, And then, Uh, In 1894, he decides to do the hajj. It seems he does the hajj three times in his life, and this is the first. 1894 is a long time ago, and one of the nice things about his account of the hajj is that you get a sense of what the hajj was before wide-bodied jets and McDonald's and the kind of uh, money-spinning experience that it's been turned into, unfortunately, in many ways uh, since then. Uh, This is the time when you went from Iraq on the Hajj, on camel, or maybe on horse, or you could walk if you wanted, and it was dangerous, because the marauding uh, nomads would pick you off if you were alone or just in a small group. You had to go with the official convoy, the caravan, with thousands of animals, Uh, that uh, was sanctioned by the Khalifa himself, behind the great Bayraq, which is the banner, a huge nine-foot-high red and green flag which led the caravan, Um, and the caravans would start relatively small from different towns, and then they would come together at certain pre-arranged dates in certain towns, and then it would just get bigger and bigger until it reached uh, the Holy City. so there was this banner, and because most of the journeying was done at night, at the top of the banner there would be a kind of large globe that would have a lantern in it. So if you were lost in the, in the darkness, um, you would hopefully be able to find your way back to, the, uh, back to the, the Hajj caravan. So he was going to join it from Zubair and later on it would meet up with the other caravans, but already there's 3,000 camels being sold and being saddled, and you had to buy everything yourself. So he had to buy sheep, slaughter the sheep, dry the meat. He had to buy, I think he bought barrels of dried aubergines and that kind of thing. And it really was a matter of your own survival. So he buys seven pack camels, loads them with all of his stuff, uh, and a uh, tent as well. Uh, there are also Iranian and Indian hajjis, those who've come overland, um, who uh, have joined the Arabs in in Iraq in order to join the Bayrakh, the, bayrak, the, the colourful Banner. Um, he reports that there was strict and efficient discipline on the caravan. So before the caravan reached a place, there would be outriders who would go ahead to check the road, obstacles, or for uh, uh, highwaymen. <coughs> there would be another group which was always left behind, uh, which would follow. About a mile or two behind in order to pick up any stragglers or uh, any items of value that had been left behind Um, because of course you'd have grannies and babies and it would be like a city on the move. Um, In the evening there would always be formal sessions whereby the scholars present would recite the Qur'an or answer questions. Of course in the days before screens people could really benefit. The hajj was a, a major uh, is for some people the major life opportunity for learning about uh, religion, moulded and so forth, would be would be a uh, song. Now Abdullah is young, vigorous and finds this thing completely spectacular and amazing. Um, people aren't in their ihram yet, they're in their national dress and the flag and the beauty of the desert, it's a wonderful thing to see. And he has a white um, fast riding camel, and that is always going up and down the, the line, sometimes going right up to the front. Um, Sometimes he'd chat with the entourage of the Amir al Hajj because there would be a, somebody in charge of it. And then when he got to the front, he would just kind of sit back with his camel and just watch the whole procession lumbering past, um, hearing people singing and listening to different languages. And they were traveling along something called the Darb Zubaydah. Uh, Zubaydah was a famous uh, princess, daughter of uh, Khalifa Harun al Rashid, one of the great. Sort of women of the Arabian Nights, who was a benefactress of the hajj. And to this day, if you go to parts of Arabia, and even in Arafat, one of the few bits that haven't been pulled down is her aqueduct that she built in order to carry water. So the hajj's at Arafat could have, could have water. Uh, and all the way on the road, from, uh, Baghdad and southern Iraq to, uh, Medina and Makkah, she would build cisterns and fortresses and make sure that, um, the Hajj's would always be well supplied. And in some cases, they're still functioning today. Nowadays, you might find there's a coke machine next to the well or something. It's not quite what it was, but, um, the buildings are still, you know, quite formidable. So that's the Darb Zubaydah, Zubaydah's Road. Um, they get to Ha'il in Dawqa'a. Ha'il is this town in northern what's now northern Saudi Arabia. The local Amir slaughters enough camels to feed everybody. One of his traditional responsibilities, uh, he says that they had cauldrons big enough to accommodate a, a complete camel. If you can imagine what that spectacle would have looked like, and then the next day, punctual to the hour, the Baghdad caravan arrives, and suddenly the moving city is even larger. Two weeks pass, and they get to Medina, um, not going into the city until uh, after uh, the middle of the morning. So they camp overnight in a place designated for um, the Baghdad caravan, and they can see the lights of Medina in the distance. Um, So he uh, finds a place to stay uh, quite close to the Haram wasn't really hotels in those days, it was just local residents renting out rooms or sometimes even their own, their whole houses. Uh, and then he goes into the Haram in Medina, and of course it's then a city of scholars everywhere, Every against every column there's some sheikh, some scholar speaking in some language, because people needed to leave plenty of slack in their uh, diaries so as not to miss the hajj. So everybody would get there pretty early, otherwise you have to come back next year. And if you've just walked from Kashmir or somewhere, that's um, a big deal. So people would get there early and you'd have this idea of Makan Medina's university cities uh, in the two or three months before the hajj. So he learns there as well. Uh, And then uh, he goes to Mecca to the haram itself, following a mutawwif, it seems he does the Qur'an uh, hajj, and again he leaves a spectacular description of what the hajj was like, uh, the traditional firing of fireworks at sundown, um, uh, at the time of the Ifada from Arafat, when everybody leaves Arafat and head off to uh, Muzdalifah to signal that there would be a cannon, but also uh, fireworks in the Ottoman period. Um, so he's done his Hajj, his uh, Hajji, and for the rest of his life, he's Hajji Abdullah Fadl al Um And then he goes off into the desert for several years. It seems he's got this kind of wanderlost romance of the desert, or he just likes the life of it. And that's an interesting uh, phenomenon. Uh, the, the falling in love with the desert and the Bedouin, despite their incredibly difficult lifestyle and the dangers of it. Um, uh, Doughty, for instance, who was here at Cambridge for a while, one of the great Arabian discoverers, never really liked Islam, never particularly felt at ease. But when he came back from Arabia, and he wrote his great travels in Arabia Deserta, which is perhaps the best book in English on the. Arabs. He was quite a good observer. He went to live in his own town near Brighton. It took about two years before he could bear to take off his Bedouin clothes and put on English clothes again. Something goes into the heart. Muhammad Asad as well, who's going through many of these same places maybe um, 30, 40 years later. The the mystique of the desert, the great silence, the changeability of the sky and the landscape, uh, the simple primordial uh, intensity of human life there, the, the wildlife, there's still lions at this time in the desert, ostriches, wolves, it's a, an incredible place, uh, that he does get that bug <coughs> and uh, starts to become something of a sort of Bedouin himself. His Arabic by this time seems to be more or less perfect. He can pass as a native. Uh, he associates with the tribe of Zafir, which is in the north of, of Arabia. Uh, participates in the Bedouin favorite sport of the Ghazul, which is raiding other tribes for uh, uh, to grab their um, camels and their sheep and their, their horses. And because he's a cowboy, his skills are very much uh, appreciated. Um, he has a slave which he records, he finds difficult, but somebody gives him this Nubian slave. And he says, well, of course, I'm going to liberate you, and the slave is absolutely horrified. I said, no, we have a really good life, and there's a slave who's now the governor of Basra, and um, there's a long argument between him and the slave, as recorded later on by one of his biographers, in which you get the sense that uh, slavery as we would understand it, but plantation slavery in the Americas was not what existed in the Arabian Desert of the time, but the slaves were fully incorporated into people's houses, wore the same clothes, ate the same food, um, could get married, could own property, could become wealthy, and generally didn't want um, their servile status to come to an end. That's an interesting conversation. He has all kinds of interesting adventures. On one occasion, he defends an entire tribe from a large group of raiders, He's gun running again. So he has 20 martini rifles, which he breaks out and gives to everybody in the caravan, even though half of them are kind of little girls. There's two eunuchs, and they've never used a gun before. But he does at least form a circle at night and kind of make a noise. And he does, in fact, save uh, save the caravan. Uh, he travels very extensively. He goes from the, the Kuwait area down to Oman, across the Hadramaut to San'a, up to uh, visit the Ruwala Bedouin, who are kind of northern Syria. So he goes all over Arabia. Um, he's, he would be remembered as one of the great Arabian explorers, except that he's not really interested in sort of observations, unlike Abdullah Felby, who's the great. British Muslim who uh, is the first really to record a crossing of the Empty Quarter. He goes across the Empty Quarter, but he doesn't really talk about it. He's too much embedded in the lifestyle. Wilfred Thesiger, another interesting example of a kind of Englishman who really gets into the Bedouin Bedouin world. Um, various adventures and almost dies on a number of occasions. Once he gets cholera really badly and very nearly dies. Um, uh, He, on one occasion, goes off on his own to visit the encampment of another tribe about a day away. When he gets to the encampment, he realizes that the the men of the encampment are all gone, and there's just the chieftain's two daughters who are there. And uh, he gets chatting to them, and they spend a very pleasant evening. The girls were aware this is kind of a bit dangerous, um, because the, the people there are chased partly because if you step out of line, somebody's going to cut your throat. Crimes of passion are uh, just a way of life there. Uh, but then, having a nice conversation with the girls and telling them about England and what the weather's like and factories and things like that, they're kind of amazed by this, these tall tales. All three of them fall asleep. Uh, he wakes up. And there is the girl's father in the light of the moon. And he's got his knife out. He's kind of looking at this scenario. And uh, eventually, the father decides against his original plan, which he said was just to leave their three heads on the sand, Um, and says, well, what you have to do is to marry one of my daughters, obviously. And so Sheikh Abdullah uh, doesn't agree. He says, I'm not ready to get married. I like traveling around. And if I have a wife, he says, if I have one wife, she, she will regard it as a slight to be married to a man who only has one wife. So she's going to insist that I take a second wife. And I don't want to do that. And who am I um, compared to the glory of your lineage? And I'm not worthy. And he kind of thinks of things to say. Uh, unfortunately, the old guy kind of changes his mind and... Uh, uh, doesn't mind particularly. So he has a number of narrow escapes uh, like that, Uh, no doubt more than he ever uh, records. Um, So he uh, is now back in uh, southern Iraq and spends some time uh, with increasing success uh, selling polo ponies to the British who used them a lot in India. Polo is a kind of very elite thing here, but in India, where it was more or less invented, just about every regimental <coughs> officer would have his own polo pony and groom, and there was a big market for them. Of course, the best horses always come from Arabia, so he manages to corner the market in that. And there's all kinds of interesting tales of him going to Bombay, dressed of course as an Arab, and listening to all these kind of English officers from various foot regiments talking about the horse, assuming he doesn't understand a word of it, and not knowing that he's actually a wanted man in India still. <laughs> and he just kind of stands there looking, because he does look very much like, like an Arab, and he gets away with it for years, selling horses and making, in some cases, very considerable profit. Um, so he kind of gets his own back in that way. Um, other interesting mischievous episodes Um, it seems that he's the first man ever to ride a bicycle in southern Iraq. He's in Zubair, and the ruler of Zubair has said, I've ordered this very weird thing called a penny farthing from England, and it's come in a box, and none of my sons can figure out what it's for. So you're English, can you come and explain this thing? Now, it seems Williamson has never ridden a penny farthing either, and it's actually really difficult. Um, It's not just like putting your leg over a normal bicycle and... With a shove, away you go. You have to run at it from behind, as if you're running you know, and jumping on a horse. And it takes a lot of practice. So he's heard this, um, and he gets the sons to hold the penny farthing while he jumps at this thing very improbably from behind, and he does himself quite a lot of injury. Well, they're all kind of wondering what on earth this strange performance is. But after a couple of days, he actually masters it, and they open the doors of the of the courtyard, and he goes off cycling this huge penny-farthing around the marketplace in Zubayr. And everybody thinks it's a djinn. (laughs) (laughs) They go, how will and They're all kind of hiding themselves. He goes through the bazaar, and it's a total sensation. They've never seen anything like this before. Uh, And that does his reputation some harm, because he's identified with various kind of unnatural, magical forces in, in Zubair after that, which is also reinforced when uh, he teaches the local people how to use a phonograph, uh, the kind of phonographic huge thing with a long kind of trumpet attached to it, very cumbrous, which comes with cylinders. So he's able to record people reciting Quran and mollid into the phonograph, and he plays it back to them. And they they cannot understand how somebody's voice comes from it. They can understand, of course, music coming from it, because they know that there's little jinn musicians inside the thing. Everybody can understand that. But when it's Sheikh so-and-so reading Quran, and now Sheikh so-and-so is inside the phonograph, uh, which is an interesting uh, illustration of um, how unchanged those places were and how total has been the transformation since that time. But he's obviously having a lot of fun with all of this. Um, yeah, so he's known for a while as the Djinn of the Big and Little Wheel. That's his uh, uh, nickname in uh, yeah, in uh, Zubair. So he's, he spends 12 years trading in horses and amasses um, quite a fortune. And he decides that his latest uh, change of career track is going to be to go back to sea again, but this time he wants to uh, have his own ship, or and uh, Arabian Gulf, a dhow. These very sort of ancient caravel-type things, which are amazingly seaworthy, actually they're very uh, intelligently put together, but they're expensive. So he buys a relatively small uh, dhow, and he goes on a series of expeditions, sailing all over the uh, all over the Gulf, and eventually, of course, he comes up. Uh, uh, before the eagle eye of the British authorities who have the Royal Navy all over the Gulf looking for gun running and also for slaving. So there's reports. One, William Richard Williamson professing to be Haji Abdullah Fadl, a Muslim Arab. So word goes out to the captains of the corvettes to keep an eye on him. Uh, but generally he knows how to give them a slip, and seems to have a kind of reasonable relationship with most of the Royal Navy vessels uh, there. Um, So he's no longer in a tent. He's now in quite a comfortable uh, house in Basra. And uh, whereas previously, whenever marriage was suggested to him, he would say, a day's hunting with the hawk is worth many women. I don't know if he said that to the girls directly, but this is his excuse. Uh, but he now seeks out the hand of a young um, Zubair girl. And he later acquires a wife in Baghdad as well and has a lot of descendants. And the descendants are still there. Uh, about five years ago, I got an email from one of them saying, we have been researching my grandfather uh, so we're a Muslimani family of Zubair. Here is my picture. They've even got a little website in English about him. Um, So uh, the descendants are still there and perfectly um, familiar with his story, and uh, he's a kind of celebrity in uh, some circles in southern Iraq. Uh, (coughs) Now the best thing you can do with a a dhow in Arabia if you really know uh, the waters is pearl fishing. Now the pearl fisheries are dead for various obvious reasons in the Gulf, but it used to be the world's most prolific uh, place for producing pearls, which are, uh, a really valuable pearl is something you can put in a raja's crown. Uh, very frustrating because you have to open tens of thousands of oysters before you get one with the... Uh, with the, the valuable pearl. And it happens uh, seasonally. So there's one pearl fishing season towards the end of the year called the Ghals al-Kabir, which is the great dive, which is when everybody who's got even a little skiff or rowing boat goes out and tries mm-hmm. to dive. Um, uh, it's a uh, quite difficult because there are sandstorms uh, and sharks. Um, but pleasant in a way. The warmest sea in the world is actually the sea between Bahrain and Qatar. Um, highest sea temperatures ever recorded. And the idea is to swim down to the seabed to find the oysters. And of course there's nothing like aqualungs or diving equipment of any kind. You just um, uh, put a peg on your nose and slip down. and. Um, it could be uh, quite damaging for the health if you're going down 20 meters or so to get to the seabed. And then with the basket on the end of a cable, you'd fill the basket and it would be hoisted up, and you'd just keep doing that for months. And you didn't need to put it to port. I guess you would eat fish, which you'd catch. And for fresh water, the fishermen knew where there were fresh water springs on the seabed. So you'd swim down with a, a leather skin fill the leather skin with the fresh water, bring it up to the surface, and you could drink it. It might be slightly brackish, but it meant you didn't need to put into uh, harbour regularly. So again, a very kind of free environment, which he appreciated. Um, Usually, the dows would return to port without anything very much. Occasionally, some lucky captain would find some amazing pink pearl, in which case he'd be set up for life. It was uh, a kind of gambling, really, but very reminiscent of Haji Abdullah's days panning for gold in California. So he threw himself into it with, with relish. So he had his own 40-ton dhow, which he called the Fath Khair, um, and uh, describes the daily pattern. Uh, at dawn, the uh, divers and the sailors would all line up and pray and then the divers would rhythmically fill and empty their lungs to oxygenate their their blood and then would empty their lungs so they wouldn't have the buoyancy and would dive uh, straight down there were certain duas and prayers that you would say at various points of the exercise usually to go down uh, you would hold a lead weight or a rock or something to accelerate your trip to um, the bottom Always on the lookout for sharks, poisonous sea snakes, which are common in the Gulf, even now, barracudas, other terrors of the deep that might um, uh, go for you. And then sun would go down, of prayers, and then in the evening, the sailors would just sit around, prizing open the uh, oysters looking for the pearls. Uh, Haji Abdullah never strikes it rich, unfortunately, and he accepts this is Allah's decree. I'm not going to make money this way. Uh, and so he goes to Damascus for two years, where he really has some quality time with the ulama uh, in various madrasas, improving his knowledge of the religion. So towards the end of his life, he is recognized as a religious authority in the Zubair area, and people will come to him with, uh, with their questions. Uh, and it's at this point, when he comes back from the Madrasa, that he finds work with Western oil prospecting companies, which are just starting to get underway in uh, <coughs> in the region. Um, so most notably in 1935, he leads the Anglo-Iranian oil company's negotiations with the then ruler of Abu Zabi. and he's the one who negotiates the contract that actually starts um, uh, hydro- uh, petrocarbon uh, uh, prospecting and production in uh, in what were the trucial states, now the United Arab Emirates. Um, similarly, he is useful to Imperial Airways. They're just starting up flights from uh, England to Australia in 1935. That was really expensive, much more expensive than taking a liner. Uh, and it would be a flying boat, which would have to Um, land on the sea, and certainly couldn't go uh, when the air was turbulent or uh, at night. So there had to be these landing uh, places, uh, inlets of various kinds, sheltered from the waves, all the way from Southampton, where they started, down to uh, northern Australia and around the coast of Australia um, to um, Port Jackson, Sydney Harbour. Uh, And they would go through uh, the Gulf, So he spent some time prospecting for uh, suitable places for these big Sunderland uh, flying boats. Um, There's a lot of information about this in a book by somebody called Archibald Chisholm, Chisholm, which is is about the first Kuwaiti oil concession. One of the best sources for information about him. He also spent some time in Iran, which is less clear and less well documented, but it seems that his interests there were commercial, <coughs> um, buying and selling uh, particularly equipment for uh, the oil industry. Uh, 1937, he leaves the oil business and retires. He builds himself a little house in a village called Qut al-Hajjaj, near uh, Zubair, <coughs> where he spends the rest of his life. He dies in 1958, and this is where these various travel writers catch up with him and listen to his story. Um, He was uh, always at the Ashar Mosque in Basra, particularly when a visiting scholar was giving a class, always present at the Tarawih prayers. Um, And at home, he would either be with his Tasbih or with um, some cheap novel about the Wild West. He had this endless supply of sort of Penny Westerns with titles like Two-Gun Pete and Mayhem at Dodge City and that kind of thing that was his, uh, was his indulgence. Um, uh, and then in 1958 he's taken on and his, his, his Mazar is known, and as I mentioned, his family is still very proud of his, his memory and he's still, uh, the Haji Abdullah is still a person whom some old timers in the Gulf, particularly Kuwait, also Qatar, because he appears to have been the first to have met the Amir of Qatar back in the early 30s uh, in order to start uh, negotiations for prospecting there, when Qatar was really kind of uh, uh, very, very very poor. And uh, he relates mischievously that uh, he went with the uh, British High Commissioner of I think, the Trucial States who realized this was important. And he said, when we get to the emir's encampment they will offer you sheep's eyes and it is very important that you eat them with every appearance of enjoyment and the poor old ambassador is thinking for king and country this is actually a kind of urban legend there's no particular bedouin cult of eating sheep's eyes it's a kind of british um, thing uh, but Abdullah then goes to the sheikhs, cooks and retinues and says that, you know, his, his highness, the ambassador, has a particular liking for sheep's eyes and it would be wonderful diplomatically if you could make sure that he's regularly served with them. So of course there's a huge plate of sheep's eyes in front of the ambassador um, and everybody's watching to make sure that he's eating them with, uh, with appreciation when he chews on these nasty things. Um, actually they don't get the concession at that point. Um, Qatar is oil-free for sometimes. So, even as a fairly old man, he still enjoys uh, a laugh at the expense of uh, authority. Um, Just an afterthought. Uh, He's been sort of there in various improbable forms in the blogosphere in the last few years, partly as a result of a strange piece by an Iranian nationalist on Forbes.com. Because it's a kind of recurrent Conspiracy theory, again, amongst secular Iranian nationalists, that uh, Abdullah Williamson was actually Khomeini's father. And this is a very, very widespread belief, and there's even an obscure English guy who's married to an Iranian woman who's written a long article in which he tries to prove this that Khomeini's mother, who is a slightly mysterious woman from Kashmir, I think she was Indian, uh, actually uh, had this child with this uh, mysterious wandering. Englishman, uh, and that Khomeini was always very uh, uh, discreet about his family and his ancestry. And For the Iranian nationalist anti-Islamic brigade, this is perfect because it means once again the British, who are the nemesis of Iran, have messed us up by bringing in this uh, clerical spy Khomeini in order to stop Iran marching on its uh, manifest Aryan destiny. It's an attractive idea for some of them. In practice, it seems that the evidence is rather thin and contrived. It's not inconceivable. He was a man uh, uh, who was able to uh, engage in all kinds of scrapes and adventures, but it's not really been verified. As far as we can tell, he just had the two Iraqi wives, and certainly that's what the family now are claiming. But it's an interesting thought. Khalid Sheldrake, Amir of Turkestan, Lord Headley, King of Albania, and William Williamson, the father of the uh, of Ayatollah Khomeini. It would be a great story if only it could be verified. Great movie as well, of course. All of this would make uh, most inconceivably exciting, exciting film. So, I've gone in some detail into the picaresque qualities of this particular individual. One of the One of those for whom Islam seemed to work particularly well as a religion for free-spirited people, uh, for those who were more comfortable with nature than with cities, those who were not particularly afraid of discomfort or death, but valued the qualitative intensity of traditional human life over and against the kind of centrally heated comforts of our mediocre semi-modernity. He saw both worlds and he was very clear as to the one which he preferred and in which he felt his uh, humanity was most exercised. Um, There are plenty of other cases, some more documented than others, of British people who have found Islam a, a particularly appropriate spiritual context for uh, this kind of quite radically antinomian, individualistic uh, style of uh, fashioning one's life. Nowadays, in our highly regulated, uh, scrutinized, retina-scanned worlds, it's rather harder for people just to vanish and go off-grid the way he did. Um, but it is interesting that Islam can function in the context of being inspirational, being a kind of leader. Not just for somebody who has a large jamaa of faithful followers hanging on his every world, but somebody who always wished to be a solitary and unique uh, person uh, ploughing his own lonely furrow. So that is it. Very different to Nana but That's part of the point. There's more than one way of being an inspirational Muslim. Assalamu Alaikum Warahmatullahi Wabarakatuh. Cambridge Muslim College training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.